Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas. I'm one of the co-hosts, and uh, we've got a special treat for you this week. My friend, Bob Shank. Say hello, Bob. Hello. <laughs> Bob is a, a special human. I mentioned we've been friends for a long time. I was a beneficiary of his teaching under the master's program. He was friends with Bob Buford of Halftime Fame. You've heard us reference Bob in past episodes. But Bob called Bob Buford, called Bob Shank a special guy because he led a family business. He leads a parachurch ministry or has led a parachurch ministry and founded one. And he's also led a megachurch. So we're covering all the bases. The only issue we're going to have today is narrowing uh, the fountain of wisdom into uh, something narrow enough to fit into uh, 30 or 40 minutes here. But Bob, thanks again for being with us. Why don't you start by just telling us a little about where you grew up, how you grew up. Oh, and I should say, I referenced the master's program. That really is one of the programs where Bob, well, we'll talk about it more, but teaches you know Christian leaders how to find their kingdom calling. But anyway, before you got into all that, Tell us about how you grew up and where that was. Born and raised in Orange County, California. I look at my uh, childhood and family of origin. It looks a whole lot like the uh, backstory of a serial killer. <laughs> um, I was raised in a very dysfunctional home. My folks were both born again and are both in heaven today. I have no doubt about that, but there were just a whole lot of reasons based on their own respective family backgrounds that healthy just never came to life in the family I was raised in. I did well in school, but I left home when I was 17 and started college. But my girlfriend's dad asked me to come to work for him. He had a company that he had founded 25 years before, had about 200 employees. He had four daughters, no sons, no succession plan. I shifted my studies into the trenches in the marketplace and took over the company six years later, built it into a category leader in the 14 Western states. In the next five years, we grew by 400% and became saleable to a major international company. I encouraged my father-in-law to sell his 100% stake in the business in the early 80s to free me to do what I had found my interest to really be. While I was building the company, my role was strategic, not tactical. I was getting effective leaders in place, coaching them, and then using my time out the back door to minister to peers in the marketplace. And I had, Jeff, so much more fulfillment satisfaction from that than I did from growing the business that the idea of running up the score for the next 40 years just didn't turn my crank. And so I encouraged my father-in-law to sell a business, which freed him financially, freed me professionally. I got a 30-day severance check when I left. I uh, contracted in my own right for about three years as I figured this thing out. And then launched the ministry that I led for nearly 40 years as my uh, primary pursuit in the 
early 80s. So my story is a little unusual just because my parachurch involvements and what would normally be considered a um, kind of a side effort that was an unimportant part of one's life, I came to realize that it was as important as I chose to make it. And I put the energy into creating a niche that was at that time pretty open and vacant. Marketplace ministries were not a dime a dozen in the 80s and 90s. And we established a pretty good footprint in that space in Southern California and had a reputation that stretched beyond that. So just for clarification, the business that you were running with your father-in-law, what kind of business was that? We were mechanical contractors. Our primary work was the installation of heating and air conditioning and new residential construction. At our peak, we were doing about 10,000 new houses a year. We were the largest in the 14 Western states in the category and uh, had about 325 employees when we signed off and were purchased by Atlantic Richfield, the oil company. Well, what I find so interesting, either even about those two sort of vignettes of your early life, your family life being kind of tough, and then getting into this this family business pretty early. You know what I mean? Like you kind of had a full career early doing that. And even though maybe those weren't, you know, the actual industry maybe wasn't your favorite. You didn't pick the family, but you know, but those experiences, uh, the thing that resonates with me about that is God never wastes our experiences. So, you know, I would imagine that also growing up in the family you did, maybe you craved some knowledge about what are healthy relationships and what does all that look like? And then so it sounds like you were sort of seeking this wisdom of leadership and healthy relationships. Am I projecting that or is that kind of part of the soup here? Jeff, you're right on it. I realized that what I wanted for my life was the polar opposite of what I was raised under. And I knew that I had not left my family of origin with that understanding. And so I, God allowed me to have the good sense to seek out mentors who would be able to transfer their experience into my life. And I'm a product of a half dozen mentors who, over the course of my lifetime, have been the right person at the right time with what I needed next. And um, my last living mentor is Chuck Swindoll. He was a friend from early on, never my pastor, but a friend and mentor from early on. And Chuck recognized that by his assessment, my uh, ability to teach and coach marketplace leaders was greater than his, he said, because he was my native tribe. I spoke their language. I understood how the mind of an entrepreneur works. And as great as Chuck was then and now in doing what he does, he encouraged me by pointing out the fact that a lack of seminary didn't necessarily pre-conclude that I could not have an impact on people who were part of my tribe. So, Yeah, and I think, man, you were really an early mover, as you sort of alluded to. There weren't a lot of businesses ministry. I don't even know if that was a term. 
I don't remember hearing it in the. I was impacted by the Christian Businessmen's Committee's CBMC back in the late 70s. I was at a national level in leadership in that organization. And it was a great evangelical movement that was primarily responsible for presenting the gospel to marketplace men and women in mealtime settings where a, a peer speaker would share their story of their professional life, inject the transformative power of the gospel in their own personal experience. And like a young life meeting for marketplace people, it always ended with an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And then they effectively discipled folks from there. My launch into what became my life was because of leadership in CBMC, mm. being surrounded by myriad men who had come to faith as adults and missed all of those decades of Sunday school that the lifers had to draw back from. Uh, these were guys who didn't really understand the... Uh, particulars of faith that a kid raised in vacation Bible school would understand. And so my, the demand that I was confronted with was to help those guys sort of catch up and uh, join forces with the Christian community, no longer feeling like they were late to the party and didn't have much to contribute. You know what's interesting about that? I always thought of it a little differently. And of maybe you did. Well, yeah. Because, well, that makes perfect sense probably about the way you thought about it, maybe for yourself. And then I'm a kid who grows up in the church, right? Father's a pastor, healthy family, all those things. But I'm like, if you join the trustees at church, they make you clip the hedges. Like, I don't even clip my own hedges. I don't get it. Like, I didn't feel like I was being effectively used within the church. So, so the people who feel like they need to catch up, the business people that feel like they need to catch up spiritual, spiritually, that's one thing. The spiritual development piece maybe is, is the piece. But then some people who are raised in the church feel like they've got that piece, but they haven't found the place where they fit in to be most effective. But we kind of meet in the middle. Once you get on the same plane as business people uh, spiritually, we still have all the same problem, which is where do I belong now? Right. And so that, to me, is part of your genius, synthesizing a lot of information from all kinds of, you know, you've sort of taken the genius of your mentors and put it into a three-year program, you know, a day, a quarter kind of deal, started it locally and rolled that out. But maybe maybe roll that out the, the way that I remember, I think it was in the intro for the master's program I did in Houston years ago, was I think... Is you or someone use the example of a diving bell where if there's like one crack, I don't know if you remember, you probably used a thousand different illustrations, but I still remember the diving bell. If there's one crack in the bell, the whole mission's kaput. Yeah. So maybe you could talk about sort of, you know, the things that you try to cover. Wow. Bob Buford was a dear friend and mentor, but colleague. And the fact that both of us had been second-generation leaders in family businesses who found even more traction and excitement in what we were able to do for the kingdom in parallel. We shared the conviction that the greatest underutilized resource in the American church is the business leaders who are parked in the pews, undervalued by the system, the opportunities for them to serve, are perceived to be kind of generic 
across the congregation until you might get to the place where three-year stint on the church board is the penultimate <laughs> destination. And then once having done that, you're uh, kind of term limited out and done for life. And we both recognized that unleashing leaders into what God made them to be was a can't-lose proposition. As we say it, and you could mouth the words along with me, but career is what you're paid for, but calling is what you're made for. And some like you have been able to find the merger of career and calling and be able to say that what you do in your income-producing life is producing uh, great results that will be measured in eternity. But for a lot of folks, I found it in the contracting world that I lived in, that it, my, my energies poured into my company were fruitful in terms of short-term uh, results, but there was something even better that I could do with the same amount of time to produce even greater results and measure that would stretch beyond the horizon of my lifetime. So, you know, we've just come to recognize that most of us are capable of doing both and, not just either or, that it isn't about go bust your head in the marketplace, uh, make as much impact as you can in your for-profit life, retire early someday, and then go join a ministry somewhere where you're ladling gravy on the mashed potatoes at the rescue mission, that maybe there's something that takes the expertise that you have refined and proven in the for-profit world and transfer those capabilities into things that will, in fact, have measure in eternity that um, you'll catch up with someday when you leave this life. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about the 12 sessions of the master's program, and I mean, it's a full day, so you're talking about you know, I mean, we're approaching 100 hours in a room uh, probably by the time you add it all up. Plus, there's some homework and books to read and all that. It's probably a few hundred hours to get to this. And so, but I'm going to put you on the spot just because I know I can probably get away with it. You can handle it. So I'm just picturing somebody on the treadmill listening to this who hasn't been through the master's program. They're definitely a leader. They're resonating with this thing about, you know, ladling <laughs> gravy or my... I literally, a hedge clipping thing is a real story a guy told me one time. He's like, I started getting stronger in my faith, and the church, I guess, noticed and put me on the trustees, and he's literally, they said, well, the first meeting's 10 a.m. Saturday, and they handed him hedge clippers, and he's like, oh, I run a company, I don't even know. So somebody's resonating with this, and they're going, well, where do I start? Now, obviously, they can sign up for the master's program. We would encourage them to do that for the, do the full boat. But if you had just a couple of thoughts to share for them, and we'll get to a practical tip at the end, we always do that. But maybe just expound on a couple of things. If we're sitting at lunch talking to some younger person, maybe, or somebody, you know, that's just starting to think this way, what are the first couple of, you know, things they should think about? You know, there's nothing worse than being disgusted by yourself. It's far mm -hmm. better to find two or three friends who share your disgust and are willing together to find some solutions. The reality is that I go to a great church that's in over 90 years old. It's a church that has accomplished a lot in its history. But it's a church where when I was a young man in that church, to find any notable assignment teaching a, an adult group, this kind of thing, the, the church was full of seminary graduates and professional 
ministry leaders who mm-hmm. worshipped there, and the the folks that were behind microphones all had doctor in front of their name or reverend in front of their name, and they didn't need any extras to come and be walk-ons hoping to get a starting position. And so it was a tremendous um, breakthrough for me to be able to recognize that finding the ability to be both supportive of my church while not being confined or limited by my church was a pretty key paradigm shift. We were able, through the peer world that I had in Marketplace Ministries back when I was in business, to be able to do things outside the context of my church life that benefited the kingdom and nobody was sort of upset by because it wasn't a church program. And I don't have to be limited to the church to be able to serve the church. And bringing the fruit from my ministry life in the marketplace back into my church benefited my church in measurable ways, but didn't take anything from my church, nor did it require that I get permission from church to be teaching Bible studies in the mornings between before work or participating in introductory events in the marketplace that would allow folks to uh, hear the gospel in settings that didn't have stained glass in front of them. So, you know, most of us sort of look back 500 years and celebrate the Protestant Reformation. One of the tenets of the Protestant Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. And uh, much of the distinctive of the Reformation, we live on a weekly basis in our faith experience, but that's one that, frankly, hasn't fully come to the platform and the doors haven't opened to offload, that recognizing that in the New Testament scriptures, there's no bifurcation between clergy and laity. Those are institutional terms that were incited by Rome, not written into the New Testament text. God talks about followers and leaders, and the distinction in terms of where you draw your income doesn't taint that. The Apostle Paul, one of the great leaders of the first century, was a an entrepreneur who spent most of his time, if he wasn't in prison, most of his time was spent making tents and then using the income that he generated from that to be able to fund himself and his team as they were in their church planting ministry across the uh, known world. So, you know, the, the dual track of career and calling in a way that collaborates and without compromise, but rather to really foster, you know, beneficial outcomes on both sides. Though I sold my way out of business and stepped away from my marketplace career 40 years ago, I've continued to be in the marketplace as an advisor and consultant for the last decade and a half. I've been an active strategic equity partner in real estate-related partnerships and other business enterprises that, frankly, we draw most of our income and do vast majority of our giving from the cash flow that's generated from those activities. But they don't require much of any time. And I believe that God blesses us with results in our marketplace lives that creates a direct flow back into his kingdom if we recognize a wise stewardship is at the core of everything we do. One thing that I really 
there are a lot of gifts that uh, God has given you, but I think one of them is focus and teaching this focus to other people. And I think that was one of the benefits that I felt from the master's program is getting pretty dang specific with the help of, you know, God's word, others, as you said, okay, to engage in this kind of thing. I think one encouragement for people is there is an answer to your question, which is where do I fit within the kingdom? Okay. So there is an ecosystem available and the master's program is is one of the great ones I would recommend to help facilitate finding that. But, you know, one of the things I think is really clear as people listen to you is that you've spent a lot of time figuring out what your gifts are and leveraging the daylights out of those. So you have these sort of, I think you have a lot of common sense business wisdom. So I could see you being effective you don't need to be on a thousand boards and vote on every motion 17B1, small one. Okay. But if you could show up for an hour with a leader and help them make sure the right people are on the seats of the book, whatever it is, strategically, that's a gift of yours. So I know that you've done a great job of managing your own time to spend as many hours as possible most effectively. So for somebody who's maybe not as clear on that, what is a first step or two to try to get that level of clarity about how you can focus better? I sat down with a good friend in 1978 who was in town for a convention. We had dinner together in my city as we were enjoying one another's company. He was a friend that I had made through Christian businessmen on a national level. He looked at me over dinner and said, Bob, what are you doing to develop your teaching gifts? And I said, nothing, Ted, because I have no teaching gifts. I said, you do. And he was a guy who had a significant uh, weekly Bible study in uh, Scottsdale that he taught every Thursday. He was an elder at Scottsdale Bible Church. I respected him greatly. But he said, what are you doing to develop your teaching gifts? I said, Ted, I don't have any teaching gifts. He said, well, if you don't have teaching gifts, what gifts do you have? Well, that was a showstopper question for me because my church didn't talk about spiritual gifts, and I just didn't have any sense that there was anything of that I was asked to bring to church except an envelope. And Ted planted that seed in my mind that night that a few months later, I was asked to teach some marketplace guys who were fairly new in their faith, and they'd gone through the 12-week follow-up discipleship method that the the ministry that I was involved with offered, but they had nothing more. And I was pressed into teaching in, in that way. And God just began to give me a sense of contribution that I'd never felt or experienced anywhere else. And I think identifying where gifting is, is a major breakthrough. Romans 12, Paul makes a big case out of the fact that we all have gifts and they're not all perceived to be equally important or valuable, but they are. And one of the gifts, for example, he describes as a gift of teaching. Yeah. One of the gifts he describes is a gift of giving. And he says, if you have the gift of giving, you give with generosity. Well, you know, use your good sense. If you have the gift of teaching, there's a pretty good chance that you have the gift of learning. Because if you think you've got something to teach and you have nothing, no storehouse to draw from, you're crazy and you'll be embarrassed quickly. The truth is that 
Undistributed assets are irrelevant. Anything God has ever given us in abundance is given to us so that we can distribute it in his name. And so for someone to be a great student and have piles of outlines and notes and discoveries that they've made and have no one to pass that to, there's a good chance that they've got an undeveloped gift of teaching. As a marketplace guy, I recognize that the more my net worth grows, the more chance that my gift is giving. And the God's no idiot. He entrusts resources to people who then have the capacity from which their giving can get great traction and leverage. I've found for me, Jeff, that the gift of teaching opened the door to things that my church never imagined. And it's curious. I mean, I, I offered to teach in my church and there was no opportunity. And then there were some changes that occurred in our church and they needed a new Sunday school class. And I started one and a few years later, the Sunday school class had about 400 people in it. Wow. And I was on the elder board at the time. And the pastor said, well, we've got a problem with this Sunday school class. It's gotten too big. And he said, what we're going to do is to um, solve the problem with two moves. One, he said, I'm going to put one of the staff pastors in charge of that class so we can shrink it down to size. And then he said, <laughs> I'm going to have Bob preach one of the three Sunday services every week, rotating between the first, second, and third service, and give me some break. And that move on his part did just what he said it would do. It shrunk the class. It oh, gave class. me a exposure at that level that Three years later, when a mega church in our, in our county lost their founding pastor through a moral disqualification, I was one of a hundred names that were proposed as a possible candidate and ended up being asked to become the pastor of that church, which was one of the hundred largest churches in America at the time. That was because Ted sat with me that night years before, 12 years before, and challenged me to find and refine a spiritual gift that I didn't even know I had. So, you know, I would say go to Romans 12 and from a list of seven, ask yourself, where might it be that God has uniquely equipped me to do something that would be more effective than I could fully claim credit for, that it would be God the Holy Spirit who deserves the credit because he distributes the gifts as he wills. And there's no telling where that could take you. It started for me in the back room of a coffee shop where I was teaching 20 or 30 guys in things that were fairly elementary for me, but breakthrough for them, and ultimately landed me as the senior pastor of a church of thousands of people with no seminary degree and no history that would have suggested that my vita would have made me a candidate for that position. There is no telling what God could do if you unleash your service to him in keeping with what he's gifted. Well, I think there's some key points out of that story you just told, and there's a repeating theme of your own story, I think, where A, you put yourself around others who were able to identify these strengths and give oxygen to them. Mm -hmm. So... First step, you got to get in a situation where that's around, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. And frankly, you have to be open to it. Like you said, find out what those seven are. So there's language for it that you have and try stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe you try some stuff as Buford to say, low cost probes that don't work. And you're like, well, I'm not doing that again. Like you and I have both shared stories about our friends, literally, God bless them, that do prison ministry. I was just at lunch. We were talking about a homeless ministry. I've tried to do those things. I'm terrible at them. And you're one of my great mentors who told me, that's okay. You're really good with uh, wealthier people. Stay there. Okay. uh, The discovery of what doesn't work yeah, is almost as valuable as the discovery of what does. Exactly. You have to be able to say no to things. I'm terrible at clipping edges. Therefore, I'm not going to be on the hedge clipping committee. Okay. So you don't want to be in the church board? No. Yeah, exactly. So I think those things about, I bet you do a lot of hedge clipping of activities for mentees, if you will, people that you disciple to try to get to that root. Is that true? Well, and to be able to disqualify the charges of elitism that could easily come out of this, let me say it this way. It doesn't mean I never pick up hedge clippers. Right. Um, what I do in the moment, because it needs to be done, is an attitude test. What I accept is an ongoing position that I pray I will get to do until Jesus returns is a different story. When Jesus came into the upper room and there were no servants there to do what servants were supposed to do, which was to wash the feet of the guests, he began to do what the servant would do had the servant been there and wash the disciples' feet. Well, he didn't do it because he was going to delay his return to heaven so he could become the foot washer extraordinaire for the next 2,000 years. He did it to prove a point to demonstrate his character, which said he was no, not too good to do anything. Right. And the message there is, if it needs to be done, do it. But that doesn't mean that it becomes your ongoing repetitive activity, unless it's where your gifting has gotten its greatest traction and demonstrated your most valuable contribution to the cause of Christ. That's so well said. And I also don't feel released from helping the downtrodden. Okay. So we do giving, you know, that, that affects that area. It's just not where I spend my hours necessarily. Mm -hmm. And other than maybe mentoring some of the leaders of those organizations. Now we have other people, even our team at work, where we support some of those things that want to go down certain places and use the shovel. That is what they want to do. That's where they feel most effective. And that's awesome. So there's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just finding the, your thing, right? Absolutely. And the, you know, it was sadly, the marketplace has done a better job of creating discovery tools and processes to get down to your uniqueness than the Christian community has either developed or practiced uh, consistency. My self discoveries early in my adult life allowed me to begin to discover that the path for me didn't have to be identical to or redundant with someone else's path for themselves. And, you know, I've become so convinced of God's extraordinary handiwork in making us 
each unique. That one of my standard lines is, if I don't find you fascinating, it's because the, the guilt's on me on that one. I just haven't taken the time to ask the right questions. Because each of us is a unique, one-of-a-kind masterpiece. Da Vinci didn't begin to touch what's possible with his painting of the Mona Lisa. That we are all frameable and suitable for display in the Louvre as God's unique hand of genius was involved in making each of us in the manner that we are. That's just amazing. You've seen hundreds, if not thousands of people, well, I, it is thousands, that have gone mm -hmm. through the master's program. Is there a story or two, I'm going to put you on the spot again, uh, we didn't talk about this beforehand. Is there a story or two that you might share just to kind of illustrate, we've kind of shared a little bit of ours, but what's another example, maybe one or two that just pop into your brain of people who kind of came in trying to figure that out and were surprised by what they learned? Uh, man, the stories oh, are, are myriad for sure. Yeah. What I've discovered is that there is an answer in every one of our lives yeah. for how we turn our pathology hmm. into power. Where we came from is probably indicative of where we're going, but things that we would dismiss as, in, as um, valueless can become invaluable if repurposed for the kingdom. A dear friend who, gosh, his story, he was an entrepreneur with multiple companies that he had started ended up on the board of the church where he had come to faith, was chairing the board of that church. The, the pastor that brought him to faith ultimately was disqualified from ministry. This guy had to be the one to run point on the board's dismissal and removal of that guy. He was so deeply impacted by that that he and his wife coming out the other end recognized that had someone intercepted that pastor and his wife sometime before he passed the point of no return, that not only would their marriage and his ministry have been saved, but the church would have been kept from the compromise that it had to go through as right. it dealt with that loss. Ultimately, he and his wife started a ministry that is pointed toward serving pastors in a way that cares for them and keeps them from reaching the kind of despondence that opens the door for the kinds of things that they never intended to engage when they were younger in preparation, but the enemy exploits because of hardship or difficulty or weakness or despair later. And their calling has now been practiced over 20 years in building out a ministry that is now uh, national in terms of its scale and scope that is pointed at serving the shepherd. They shepherd the shepherds. That's the motto for Standing Stone Ministries, birthed out of the master's program experience for a husband and wife who said, how do we take the pain that we've had and turn it into a productive contribution to God's kingdom on the other end? Well, that, that really brings it full circle to what we started talking about, which is your own ministry, I think. And to some extent, all of us. Okay. God does not waste any of these experiences, and to be reflective then of, of what God's taken us through, and you know, I think one thing that we've talked about before is, you know, what breaks your heart? That's really different for almost everybody, and, and why does it break your heart? Probably because you've had some exposure to it in some way. So, exactly. so, you know, as we wrap up, Bob, 
you know, I've already been grilling you on tips, but because you're just so full of them. And frankly, you've made a, your purpose is in sharing such wisdom with people trying to find their kingdom calling. But, you know, we always ask at the end, just one little practical thing somebody can maybe put in place tomorrow that's walking the dog listening to this thing and ends like, man, I really, this resonates. I know I'm not being fulfilled. I have not found my calling, but I have a strong desire to do it. What should they do tomorrow as a first? It's January. People tend to become self-reflective and a little bit strategic as they have a new year in front of them. I'll drop my uh, big three on you. It's not news to you, but I'll repeat it as my mantra. If you could only advance on three fronts this year, let me give you three to go for it. First is balance, to recognize that all of the parts of your life have to be working in keeping with God's design. The personal, the family, the professional, the kingdom, all of those warrant attention. Too often we are success in one area at the expense of another. And until I get wholeness and a holistic experience of following Jesus, God will never use me to the max. So balance is a starting point. Margin is a second. Margin says, I'm now going to work on reducing the consumption of time and energy and money. I'm going to start creating surpluses that allow me to entertain new opportunities that I would otherwise have to turn down. If your calendar has become loaded with excess, um, you're a slave, even though you may think you are the independent, self-determinate person, if you've allowed other people to compromise your calendar, you're a high-priced slave. Margin says, I'm freeing up time and bandwidth that is now available for utilization elsewhere. Balance margin, the third is focus. If you make progress in balance and margin, the enemy will come at you with opportunities that are diversions and wastes, low return wastes of time. You're in the business, Jeff, of helping people develop surpluses that can then be invested in high return investments. There's nothing worse than having margin in it time and money and influence and bandwidth, and then investing it in low-yield activities. Focus says, I'm not open to anything, but I'm available for the right things. And most of the time, that's a proactive search. If it comes looking for you, you're fortunate. But for most of us, it's going to be the result of a search. But a search that is very qualified, very narrowed, very specific. I'm looking for things to do that are in my lane, not random. I think that's such a good point that actually it's a proact. I don't think that's, I don't think that's normal thinking of it's how do I say yes to the right thing. And, and over time, you know, a lot of people listening to this probably do get hit with those things, but this idea that, you know, sitting back, it's probably not just going to cross my desk. I need to actively go find it. But to go find it, you had to identify kind of what you're looking for. There's a specific search criterion. There you go, right. I should have for where, where I belong in terms of God's kingdom. Balance, margin, and focus. A lot of way to measure those things in terms of your own personal life and then pursue 
advancing on all three of those fronts into a new year, and things will get better, I promise. Well, balance, margin, and focus. I wrote it down again. I can't think about it enough. We're here from you enough. So, Bob, thanks so much for being with us today. I wouldn't have missed the opportunity. You're a good friend, and and I'm uh, convinced God is using you and the folks that are under your influence to make a difference in the things that will measure eternity. Well, thank you very much, and thanks, everybody, for joining us on this week's Juris Business Owner Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.